Welcome to the Radiant Visalia podcast. Join us at one of our two services, 9 a.m. and 1045 a.m. Download the Church Center app or visit our website, radiantvisalia.com, to stay connected with us. All right, enjoy. If you were here, we talked um, about some passages in Ephesians chapter 4 that call the church to have leaders that reflect Jesus. The church is called to have leadership in place that reflects all that Jesus was. And the reason that we're to have leaders in place... The reason that God wants apostolic leaders in the church is because he wants an apostolic church, a church that's pioneering, a church that's venturing out and beginning new works, um, a church that's crossing barriers and crossing cultures. And the reason that he wants prophetic people in the church is because he wants a prophetic church, a church that has its ear turned towards God. And communicates the heart of God and the message of God in a timely and, I'm adding, appropriate way. (laughs) And he wants evangelists in the church because he wants an evangelistic church. He wants his body to reflect all that he is, not just parts of who he is. And today I want to talk about the way that our marriages are called to reflect Jesus. Leadership in the church that reflects and represents all that Jesus was. Jesus was the apostle. Jesus was the prophet. Jesus, the evangelist. Jesus, the pastor, the chief shepherd. And Jesus, the teacher. And he's called his church to represent him. And today I want to tell you that your marriage was intended to be a reflection. And don't, uh, for those of you who are single, tune me out this morning. I think that you might be, um, you know, starting to head that way. Don't go that way. Don't tune me out this morning. This isn't just for married people. Because what I want to invite you to understand is, is the premise of Christian marriage and the purpose of Christian marriage. And I believe the purpose of Christian marriage is gospel reenactment. Gospel reenactment. And there's some lies that our culture tells us about marriage. And there's quite a bit of confusion about what it is. Don't turn with me. Because um, I, I, I'd rather let this be a short rabbit trail and not a long one. But in Jeremiah 29, the people of God are living in exile. And they don't want to live in the city they're in. They don't want to live in the pagan city of Babylon. They want to go home. How many, I, I, I experience that feel, those feelings sometimes when I'm in L.A. I just want to go home. I don't want to be in this pagan city any longer. <laughs> uh, just as bad with San Francisco, actually, as well. Um, But they just want to go home. And uh, God says, nope, you're not going home. I want you here and I want you in this city. And then this is what God tells his people that are living in exile in Babylon. Jeremiah 29. This is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says to all those I carried into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Really interesting. I carried into exile. Build houses and settle down. Plant gardens and eat what they produce. Marry and have sons and daughters. Find wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage so that they too may have sons and daughters. Increase in number there. Do not decrease. Also, seek the peace and prosperity of the city to which I have carried you into exile. Pray to the Lord for it. Because if it prospers, you too will prosper. And what I gleaned from this this week is that 
part of it, what, of it, what it means to live out your family life in Visalia is to seek the peace and prosperity of this city. The city is changed by family. There's a lot of confusion about what it means to be married, what is marriage. And these people probably didn't necessarily have the same problems that surround marriage today. They had their own set of problems. Don't get me wrong. I don't want to pretend like this was high times. They had their own set of problems that were unique to them. But they probably didn't struggle uh, with the same things that we struggle with today. What does it mean to be married? What is Christian marriage to look like? Turn with me to the most probably, um, I, I would call it notorious. Does notorious have negative connotations? Does it? What about infamous? Negative? Ah. Part of what it means to be a <laughs> part of what it means to be a pastor is to use words that fall way outside your vocabulary for the sake of furthering the gospel and making everybody think you know more than they do. Uh, turn to Ephesians five. We talked about the gifts of the Spirit last week, and I don't feel like I've got a lot of room up here to move in the gifts of the Spirit. I feel kind of... Let's start in verse 21, chapter 5, verse 21. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. And here we go. Wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church, his body, of which he is the Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives, wives should submit to their husbands in everything. Husbands... Love your wives, just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word, and to present her to himself as a radiant church, without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. In this same way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. After all, no one ever hated his own body. But he feeds and cares for it, just as Christ does the church. For we are members of his body. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife. And the two will become one flesh. This is a profound mystery, but I'm talking about Christ and the church. However, each one of you must love his wife as he loves himself, and the wife must respect her husband. If we don't start by talking about both the premise of Christian marriage and the purpose of Christian marriage, you're probably not going to receive anything that Paul has to say to you right here. In fact, if you think that the purpose of marriage is ultimately to fulfill your needs, this doesn't look like a recipe for a good marriage. And so you need to understand the purpose of marriage. But one of the things that I feel like is so often neglected when we talk about Ephesians chapter 5 is the premise of Christian marriage. What is the premise of Christian marriage? And this description of a marriage is a subheading to Paul talking about what life looks like when you're filled with the Spirit. 
He's talking about life filled with the Spirit. And I think people ignore that. And we start right here. Wives, submit to your husbands as if unto the Lord. And I know that's every woman's favorite verse in the Bible. I know that when you go on the next women's retreat, it'll probably be on your shirts, you know. I know that. I know that that one's on your mirror when you wake up in the morning, you know. But you need to understand that Paul's talking about life. He's describing life filled with the Spirit. And what, uh, what it looks like when two people filled with the Spirit get hitched. Start up a little bit higher with me. In verse 18 it says, Do not get drunk on wine which leads to debauchery. Instead be filled with the Spirit. Speak to one another with psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. Sing and make music in your heart to the Lord. Always give thanks to God the Father for everything in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church, his body. What I want you to notice here is like, Paul isn't like, you know, life in the spirit, describing life in the spirit, sing, make psalms, do all these things. Now that's enough about life in the spirit. Let's now turn and talk about marriage. This is one thought. Christian marriage is a subheading under the heading of what it looks like to live filled with the Spirit. And what Paul says is that when someone's filled with the Spirit, their self-centeredness is eroded. The gospel will erode your self-centeredness. And people who are filled with the Spirit will begin to serve one another. They will begin to submit to one another. This is what spirit-filled life looks like. I know that maybe what um, you know, Christian television has told you is that you know, uh, being filled with the Spirit looks like being served. That you've got an armor bearer that hands you water bottles. And you know, it, 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 I think what's been presented to us is that those that are filled with the Spirit and walk with the Spirit are served. And what Paul is saying is that those that are filled with the Holy Spirit serve. They actually start to lay their lives down. Back to the notes. If you have uh, received the gospel, which is the good news of Christ's death and resurrection, you've already seen it begin to erode your self-centeredness. Have you seen it start to chip away at your self-centeredness? What Paul's saying is that when the Spirit takes the reality of the gospel and drives it into the very fabric of who we are, our self-centered nature is eroded. And we're able now to lay down our lives and serve one another. Let me tell you a couple ways in which the gospel does this. Let me tell you how the gospel wears us down. The gospel comes to us and the first thing that it tells us is that you're a lot worse than you think. The first thing that the gospel communicates to us is it's real, real bad. Way worse than you think it is. Don't ignore this voice. If there is no conviction, there will be no conversion. We want the conversion. It has to come with conviction. Let your marriage uh, come under the conviction of the Holy Spirit this morning. Let the way you're uh, looking for a husband and a wife come under conviction this morning the gospel tells us that you can never clean up your life never (laughs) it's really really bleak 
There's no way you're going to be saved and no amount of self-effort is going to save you. These are the first words of the gospel. Nothing but the death of the Son of God will save you, says the gospel. You're a, wor- you're a lot worse off than you think. Then the second thing that the gospel says, almost simultaneously, I don't know how it does this, but probably every one of us has uh, experienced this. The second thing that the gospel says is that you're more loved than you think. You're worse off. Things are really bad, and you're more loved than you think. Because the Son of God gave His life as a ransom for yours. So the gospel is, at the same time, terribly humbling. Terribly humbling. And tremendously affirming. It removes our self-centeredness because it humbles us. And it removes our neediness because it affirms us. And if the Spirit of God takes the gospel and makes it more than abstract doctrines and drives it into the very center of who we are, uh, you know what it does? It makes us the type of people who are able to give. It makes us the type of people who don't need a lot of thanks and don't need a lot of strokes and don't need a lot of affirmation because we're finding our identity in Christ and in what Christ has done for us. And now you can put the needs of others before your own. And probably many are saying at this point, well, what does that have to do with marriage? Let me back up one more sentence. You can now put the needs of others before your own. Now let me make this big jump into marriage. (laughs) Stick with me. Here's what Paul's saying about the premise of marriage. Is that when two people have had the gospel driven into the depth of their hearts by the Spirit of God, and they get married... The woman should grant the husband leadership. And the husband should lead like Jesus. By sacrificing his life. The husband should respond by taking on the Jesus style of leadership. And sacrificing himself for the needs of his bride. So the premise of Christian marriage is that two people are filled with the Spirit and the Gospel. This is what's being described here in Ephesians. This is the model that Paul's uh, laying out for us. Two people getting married who are filled with the Spirit and have been formed by the Gospel. If you're here and you're single, or let's just say you're a lady and you're not married, I don't care if you're dating someone or engaged, don't you dare give a man this type of place of leadership in your life who has not been filled with the Spirit and radically shaped by the gospel of the cross. Don't you dare give a man this place of leadership. Don't do it. Don't settle for someone who's not been filled with the Spirit and had their insides, their guts, permanently reshaped by the gospel of the cross. Are, you a, are, are there single women here? Even maybe if you're dating, would you, would you stand? Do it now. Do it now. It's not that bad. Everybody's doing it. Raise your right hand. No joke. I'm not joking around. Be counted today. Stand up and own it. I, fill in the blank. 
won't give a man this type of leadership in my life unless his ego has been radically reshaped by the gospel of the cross. You can have a seat. So let me talk about the purpose of Christian marriage. Another way to ask this would be to ask, uh, why do people get married? Why do people get married? What's the purpose of marriage? And in Paul's day, in ancient cultures, and really I would say still in traditional cultures, marriage is a business proposition. Marriage is a business transaction. You didn't marry people for love. You didn't marry them because you had romantic feelings for them. Or you didn't marry for personal fulfillment. This is why you married in Paul's day. This is a blanket statement um, based on the culture. I obviously didn't know anyone who lived a couple thousand years ago. They might have been head over heels in love. But... You got married in such a way that you, you're, you would help your family station itself and secure it in the world. And honestly, there are parts of the world where marriage is still this. They still see marriage as a means to position yourself and to secure yourself in the world. Our Western culture is a little bit different than this. <laughs> we're... we're We're not very good businessmen. We marry for love. We marry for individual fulfillment. We marry Mr. Right. Mrs. Right. We marry uh, because of romantic feelings. We we marry someone because they make us feel great about ourselves. We marry someone because they're giving us uh, a ton of affection. We love the way we feel about ourselves when we're around them. And we find our relationship with them completely fulfilling. And what's interesting about the Bible is it says that both of these approaches are wrong to marriage. And both of them, I would say, are reductionistic. They reduce the purpose of marriage. The Bible says that the purpose of marriage is gospel reenactment. A reenactment, a real-time reenactment of the gospel. Like you're watching Unsolved Mysteries, and no one was there, and yet a couple of actors have been paid a couple of dollars to reenact the crime scene. The purpose of your marriage is gospel reenactment. Come with me down here. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. In this same way, husbands, love your wives as your own body. He who loves his wife loves himself. After all, no one ever hated his own body, but he feeds and cares for it, just as Christ does the church. For we are members of his body. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. This is a profound mystery. But I'm talking about Christ in the church. Each one of you must love his wife as he loves himself, and the wife must respect her husband. What I love about this description of what Jesus is and does for the church is that he wasn't satisfied just to redeem us. Jesus was not satisfied just to pardon us. He goes on to make us glorious. 
he goes on to say, no, 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 I've got a vision for your life. I've got an idea of who you can be. You're a shell of who I've created you to be. And I'm not content just to forgive your sins. I'm not content just to pardon you. I've got a plan for you. And pardoning you is just a part of that plan. It is not the end. He has a plan to make you glorious. He has a plan. He has a vision for your life. Sociologists, again, this is something I read, so don't think that I'm smarter than I am. Sociologists, they use a term called commodification. And there's a lot of talk about commodification. And the definition of commodification is this. It's a process by which social relationships are reduced to economic exchange relationships. There's a lot of buzz about this idea of commodification. Your social relationships are reduced to economic exchange relationships. Let me try to define this because I think in doing so, you're going to realize um, <laughs> the, the difference between the way God thinks about relationship and the, the, and the way we think about relationship. An exchange relationship is what we would call a consumer relationship. You have a consumer relationship with your grocery store. You say hi to the people that check you out. You know, if you go to the same Save Mart or the same Target, you probably know the people that work there. You know the way that it's laid out. But your relationship with Save Mart is based on them giving you Alec type of service. Your relationship is them give is based on them giving you good product at a good price. That's what your relationship with a store is based on. Them giving you good product at a good price and it being close to your home. Because when you find a grocery store, i.e. Winco, that gives you maybe not better product but gives it to you at a better price, we say what? But buy Save Mart. But buy Target. I've found something that gives me a better product at a better price. And because we have a consumer relationship, this isn't working out for me. I'm moving on. What's interesting about um, commodification or an exchange relationship is this your needs are more important than the relationship. Your personal needs are more important than the relationship. The Bible tells us that marriage is a covenant relationship. There's a lot of different things we could say about covenant. But what I want to say right now is that a covenant relationship is a relationship where the relationship is more important than your personal needs. And what's happening right now in our culture is we are exchanging our social relationships for consumer relationships. And that consumer relationship has you putting your personal needs in front of the relationship as opposed to putting the relationship in front of your personal needs. Sounds like this. I'll be the spouse I'm supposed to be as long as you're the spouse you're supposed to be. I'll meet your needs as long as you meet my needs. And when you fail to meet my needs, don't expect me to meet yours. The language of a covenant marriage, the way that God designed covenant is this. I'll still meet your needs even if you're not meeting mine. I'll be the spouse I ought to be, even if you're not. This is not romantic, is it? It's covenant. It's commitment. And might I say to you, actually, that there is nothing, nothing more fulfilling than two people being in a relationship 
where both people are seeking the well-being of the other and putting that person's needs before their own. Nothing more fulfilling than that. Nothing more fulfilling than laying your life down to meet the needs of another. The self-fulfillment ethic is so destructive to marriage. There's this idea that it's an institution designed primarily for your fulfillment. Some of you have marriage framed up this way right now. Let's just say every one of us does to some degree. It's an institution designed for my fulfillment. And if you put your marriage in a place where it's the ultimate thing, you'll crush it. If your marriage becomes the ultimate thing, you'll crush it. I love the way Paul ends this passage in Ephesians 5 because essentially he's saying even a good marriage points to something beyond itself. Even a good marriage, a spirit-filled marriage, even one that's working exactly the way I designed it to work is not the ultimate. The ultimate is the spousal love of Jesus Christ. If you elevate your relationship with somebody to the place where it is the ultimate thing, it'll be, it'll be terrible. I'll see you in a couple weeks in my office. You'll crush it. You can't take the expectations that were meant for God and put them on a person. And this is what goes on in our society as it becomes secularized. We no longer look to God to meet these needs, and now we look to romantic love to meet these needs. And we're destroying our relationships with one another. It's really, really messy. That's why half of our marriages are ending in divorce. And I know you've heard all these statistics before. 40% of kids going to bed tonight without a dad. The purpose of marriage. The purpose of the marriage is gospel reenactment. The purpose of marriage is to point beyond itself. It's a means. It's a means. Not the end. Everybody who's married is going, you're right, it is a means. Everybody who's not is being like, what? <laughs> it was supposed to do so much for me. Everybody else is like, man, been there. <laughs> I'm wanting. (laughs) If you don't understand the premise of Christian marriage, and if you don't understand the purpose of Christian marriage, nothing that Paul says here in Ephesians 5 is going to make any sense to you. You're going to be like, what? Yeah, right. Understand the premise of Christian marriage. Two spirit-filled believers who've been shaped by the gospel of the cross and the wife granting the husband leadership and the husband leading like Jesus in the home. The purpose of your marriage is to reenact the gospel. And when you know that your purpose, the purpose of your marriage is to reenact the gospel, then when you look down and it says, wives, submit to your husbands, it makes perfect sense because it's not necessarily about your needs. See, the scripture is so radical. And I, 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 I want to preach this this morning. Husbands, you love your wives until she's lovely. You don't love her because she's lovely. You love her until she's lovely. Wives, you respect your husbands, not because they're respectable. You respect them until they become respectable. This is the model we've been given in Jesus. He had a bride too, right? Us? (laughs) He didn't love us because we were lovely. He loves us, loves us, loves us, loves us, washes us. Makes provision for us until we're lovely. And this will end with his church being radiant, gorgeous, You respect your husband until he becomes respectable. 
And husbands, you love your wife until she becomes lovely. You love her, you love her, you love her. Well, she wears sweatpants all week and yells at me. You love her, you love her, you love her until she trades those sweatpants out. time is it? Brant's got the clock back there. Flava Flav, what time is it? 11.15. So here we go. Now that you understand the premise and the purpose of Christian marriage, let's talk about these passages that are a model of two spirit-filled people uh, hooking up together. Wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord. And what I think Paul means by this passage is, Wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord. I know that that's a stretch, and I'm reading into the original language. But when... When the Bible says, wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord, um, I think the Bible means wives, submit to your husbands as to unto the Lord. And I know what everyone's thinking. If you're a wife here, probably thinking, you have not met my husband, you know? Like, that's not what Paul meant. Paul was not talking about my husband, you know? And I want to go ahead and say, yeah, he was. And I think any time we talk about issues of submission... What I hate about it is people try to find loopholes. Anytime we're talking in Romans about submission to authority, you know what people bring up? Nazi Germany. You know? It's like, well, if we were supposed to submit to authorities, then we wouldn't be able to house Jews and we would have to kill them. It's like, no, you're not living in that time right now. And my experience has been that anybody who's looking for an exception or a loophole is just looking to justify the sin in their life. There are exceptions, and then you're not the exception. Do you know what I'm saying? This, this is great. This is great because this comes up in so many issues. Everyone, what about Nazi Germany? I mean, submit to my husband. What if he's doing this? And we're looking for the exception because we don't want to respond to what's really clear here. This is, a, this is great when we talk about tithing. Anybody who's looking for an exception is not looking to give more than the tithe. They're looking to not give. Well, are you sure the Bible, you know, um, calls for people to give, to tithe? I mean, that tithing stuff's kind of crazy, you know? It's like, well, I'll give you the alternative. The alternative is for you to lay everything at my feet including your car. You can just leave it in the parking lot. Those are, that's your alternative. If it doesn't expressly condone or contemn the tithe, then the problem is, is we've got a much higher water level in the New Testament. But when people say, are you sure about that tithe? What they're looking for is an excuse not to do what the Bible tells them to do. So yeah, there are exceptions, and I'm not going to waste my time talking about it. I don't want to talk about Nazi Germany. That's not where we live. My guess is that your husband treats you better than the husbands were treating their wives in Paul's day. That's just my guess. That might not be true. There are exceptions, and you're not it. You're the rule. You're the rule and not the exception. I know that's not what they told you growing up when they tried to build your self-esteem and tell you you're one of a kind. There's no one in the world like you. You're unique. You're the man. You know, like, you're the rule. You're, you're right there in the middle. You know, we're, we're all people. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church. You know, there's, there's a lot of debate on um, whether or not the man should be the head of the home or might be the head of the home. And what I like about what Paul says here is that he says the husband is the head of the home. He just is. It's not that he should be. It's not that he might be. It's not that he could potentially be the head of the home. He is the head of the home. And I would say that if you are in a situation or if you know someone who is in a situation where you would say, that's not true about this house, 
she for sure wears the pants. She's the head of the home. If you see a situation like that, I really still honestly believe that that is the way it is um, because of the man's inability to initiate and to lead. The question is not, is the man the head of the home? The question is, is he doing a good job as the head of the home or is he doing a bad job as the head of the home? Is he leading like Jesus or is he not leading like Jesus? Because he is the head of the home. He just is. And most situations that we see are, are out of balance, I believe, are out of balance because of a reaction. It's a reaction to the man's inability to step up and to lead. Now that brings us to our next point, because it says that the husband is the head of the wife, as Jesus is the head of the church. We, Jesus is the head of the church. We don't vote on that. Well, I don't know. Travis, he preaches a heck of a sermon, you know. I don't know, man. Should he be the head of the church? Should he not? No, Jesus is the head of the church. He just is that. It's not up for vote. We're not negotiating it. The husband is the head of the home. Is he doing a good job? Probably not. Does that mean that there's a response and someone steps up? Probably, but he is. And the question is not, is he, should he be, might he be, he is. The other thing that's really controversial about this passage is this word head. What does the word head mean? What is headship? There's a lot of argument about what this word means. And again, I don't know Greek. I don't know Hebrew, and I've not been to seminary. But to me, as I read this passage, headship is defined. Headship finds its reference in Jesus. If you want to be a head, you be like Jesus. Headship is being like Jesus. I don't know what it means in the Greek, and I don't know what it means in Hebrew, but I know what it means in this passage. If you're going to be a head and you're going to lead, then you lead like Jesus. That's how we define headship. Jesus-ship. You know, I don't know, I don't know any other way to say it. It, it. it is defined by Jesus and his relationship with the church. So that's how we'll define headship. Being like Christ. Most women, I would say, they do um, submit to their husbands. And they do when it's convenient. (laughs) And when they agree with their husbands. And what I want to tell you this morning is that's actually not submission at all. (laughs) That's agreement. (laughs) Pretty easy to do. When should, should wives submit to their husbands... Down in verse 24, it is a pretty difficult passage. It says, Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands in everything. And what I think Paul means by in everything is in everything. And I think there might be exceptions, and you're not it. Let me tell you what this isn't saying. Let me back up and say what this isn't saying. Is that men are the head of women in general. It's not what this passage is saying. This is about husbands and about wives. Men are not the head of women in general. This is not saying that men are superior to women. This is not saying that men and women are not equal. This is saying... That men and women are meant to complement one another and they have different roles. And if you're in a Christian marriage, you should grant your husband leadership in the home. And if you're a husband in that home, you should lead like Jesus by laying down your life. So if you're ahead, 
then you lead like Jesus. That's how we'll define headship. What this means is that you've got a bride, and Jesus has got a bride. And you treat your bride like Jesus treats his bride. What does that mean? Number one, it means that you initiate. You initiate. I was with a... Eric, edit this out. I was with a couple. No one's going to want to do their premarital with me. I was with a couple last week, and it was awesome because um, this guy, this guy, he just uh, loves his sports center, you know? And, and she's always on him to mow the lawn and to keep things up around the house. And they told this story where he actually decided when he got home from work to initiate. And he went outside and he mowed the lawn in the backyard. And when she came home, he walked her proudly to the sliding glass door and pointed to, a, to freshly cut grass. And she started to cry. She broke down crying because she had been initiating for so long and he had not been responding. If you're going to be the head of your house, like Jesus is the head of his church, then you initiate, you pursue your wife. You pursue your wife. Don't sit back and wait for your orders. You pursue. Jesus is relentless in his pursuit of us. He doesn't wait for us to initiate. Oh my gosh. Did Jesus wait for you to initiate? He demonstrated his love for us in this. While we were still sinners, he died for you. What this means, if you're going to be the head, then you go first. If there needs to be repentance, then you go first. If there needs to be reconciliation, then you go first. If there needs to be work done, you go first. And it also means that you take responsibility. You take responsibility. And get this. I mean, it's hard enough to get anyone even to take responsibility for what they've done wrong. People typically won't even cop to that. And if we're going to be the head and lead like Jesus leads, then you have to take responsibility for things that aren't even your fault. Because was it Jesus' fault that I sinned? Was it Jesus' fault that I sinned? Still, he took responsibility for the situation I was in and changed things. If you're going to be ahead, men, I'm calling you this morning. You initiate. You pursue. You go first. You say you're sorry first. You repent first. And you take responsibility, even for things that aren't your own fault. We're going to be heads like Jesus is the head. Then we take responsibility. It's the privilege of a man to represent Christ to his bride. When she thinks of her husband, she should think of Jesus. My husband pursues me. Jesus pursues me. My husband loves me. Jesus loves me. Jesus gave himself up for me. My husband gives himself up for me. And I don't have a lot of experience. I'm I'm very young. And I'm very insecure. And there's a lot of things that I don't know. And there's a lot of things that I don't know that I don't know. But the women who struggle with these scriptures are typically women who don't have a head that's leading and loving like Jesus. You start to lead and love like Jesus, and it will become the scripture that's on the camp shirt. It will be the scripture that's on the mirror. People who have a problem with this doctrine are people that have been hurt by poor leadership. They've been hurt by men who have not taken up Jesus' leadership style and model and have wounded people. 
Husbands, love your wives. I think what Paul means when he says, husbands, love your wives, is husbands, love your wives. It freaking works every time. (laughs) One size fits all. What I want to tell you, though, is that love doesn't just feel things. Love does things. You don't just feel love. Love does things. God's love changes people. God's love forgives. God's love, it reconciles. God's love redeems people. It doesn't just feel things. It does things. And I want to end by again saying, His love for us isn't because we're lovely. And husbands, you should love your wives. Love your wives as Christ loved the church. Love her, love her, love her, love her, love her, and she'll become lovely. Wives, if you respect your husbands and communicate your love to him by respecting his leadership, and respect him, and respect him, and when he's despicable, respect him, he will become respectable. This is what gospel reenactment looks like in a marriage. This is the gospel. While you were dead in your sins, Christ made you alive. He took for himself a bride, and he loved her, and he washed her, he bathed her in the word. He made her holy, made her blameless. Took responsibility for the situation that she was in, pardoned her, and then presented her with a vision. Well, you're just a shell of who I know you could be. And my love is going to do things for you. And at the end of this, we will be a part of a radiant bride because of his persistence and our yielding to his sanctifying work in our lives. I don't know exactly how to end this time together. But I guess I would say that I I hope that you're as convicted as I am. Because if you love people because they're lovely, pagans can do that. And if you respect people because they're respectable, whoopity-doo, says Matthew. Whoa, you know, everybody can do that. Can you let the spousal love of Jesus Christ secure your heart and meet your needs and let it bring you to a place where you can love someone who's not being lovely and you can respect someone who's not being respectable? I think what I'd like to do is not let anybody leave here. And what I'd like to do is to have the men stand. I'd like to pray over the men this morning. Everyone's waiting for the next thing. (laughs) All right. Father, we stand before you. And we confess that we've made our relationships with our wives and with women consumer relationships. And we've put our needs... We put our needs before the relationship. And we repent. And we embrace the truth that our relationship with our wife is a covenant relationship in which we put the relationship before our needs. And we repent for not initiating. Our wives are the ones who want to pray. Our wives are the ones who want to go to church. Our wives are the ones that want to engage with our kids. And we've not initiated. We've not gone first when it's time to say we're sorry. We've not taken responsibility. We've said things like, oh, that's your problem. And would you get the kids? They're bugging me. Jesus, I thank you for laying down your life as an example 
I pray that the marriages represented here in this church will reenact the reality and the truth of the gospel. And if, we're, if, you're, if you're here and you're not married, I pray that you would shape these young men. That their male ego would be completely formed by the gospel of the cross. And we repent, God, where we've said, well, if you'll be the type of spouse you need to be, then I'll be the type of spouse I need to be. And if you meet my needs, then I'll meet your needs, God. We take responsibility. We're responsible. I pray as we go from here, we could live differently. And I pray for every guy here that he could receive the spousal love of Jesus Christ. You are his bride. Women, would you stand? Father, we too just want to repent this morning, Lord. Father, forgive us for looking to be served instead of to serve. Father, forgive us for judging men, for speaking ill of men, for judging our own husbands and speaking ill of them, Lord. Forgive us for our pride even, or just being puffed up thinking that we're better. Father, we repent. Lord, forgive us for where we've resented rules of service. Lord, forgive us for where we've resented serving in the home, Lord, or serving with our children, or whatever role we find us in, ourselves in, Lord, where I've just resented being the servant. God, forgive me. And we receive this morning, Lord, your spousal love, Jesus. Lord, the love that just fills us and draws us out to give, causes us to run to give, to run to pour it out because we've been so loved. God, we just ask that you would fill us again, Lord. Fill us anew today with that love. That we would be women that would look to serve, look to give, to pour ourselves out because of the way that we've been loved by you, God. Forgive us, Lord, for where we've even resented not being the pursuer and where we've wanted to step into that role, Lord. But we just take our place this morning and say, you pursue, Jesus. You're the one, God. And we want to be pursued by you. And we want to be pursued by men. And we want to receive and respond to that kind of love, Lord. I thank you, Father, that you've always gone first. And even when we've been at our ugliest, Lord, you've always gone first. And we just thank you for that. Father, teach us, Lord, how to submit, how to trust you. How to make room for you to lead us, Lord. How to give you the space to lead, Jesus. We don't know what is best, Lord. Father, cause us to just let go of the reins, just to take our hands off and to give you the space to lead and to give men the space to lead, Lord, to relinquish our just desire to be in control and to just give room to make space for men and for our husbands. Teach us, Lord, how to cheerlead how to be the biggest fans of our husbands and 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 just the men in our lives how to how to give respect and how to just speak words of respect into our husbands to even call them up to a higher place to to continue to speak into them and to to encourage them and to call them higher lord we ask for just new, fresh vision, Lord, for, for wives, for single women. We, we pray that just every area where we've lined up with the world and 
we've had that kind of mindset towards marriage and towards men that you would tear it down, Lord, and you would give us new, fresh vision this morning. Heal our hearts, Lord, where there's been woundedness and brokenness. We say that you're enough, Jesus. Just bring that complete healing, Lord, that we could live out of a restored place, that we could love and give and serve out of a restored place, Lord. And I thank you for that scripture that was read earlier in prayer this morning, that you call us to obey your commands, but then you say that we're not slaves, that we're friends. And I just thank you, Lord, that you, you ask us for things out of a place of friendship and not a place of slavery. And I just want to speak that over every woman in this room, friend of God, that we can submit to the Lord and we can submit to our husbands. God is worthy and he's able and he's good. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening. We want to be a resource for you as you walk with Jesus. So please connect with us at radiantvicelia.com. Until next time. There is a heavenly city that I'm compelled to find. Oh, I love the flowers and trees and the smell of the grinding sea. And all the beautiful things here in life And I